As we move forward into our planned discussion for today, I will invite in Kyle, my co-pastor. Hey, Kyle. Hello. How's it going, friend? All right. We're doing all right. Uh, today, as we've been uh, forecasting, is the last in this series that Ed has brought us to uh, with his story, God of the Oppressed. Uh, we've been leading in, leaning into uh, oppressed people group uh, perspectives on Jesus, on faith, on God, trying to expand our views. And it's been so fun to be guided by different individuals in our community. We're grateful to Rebecca, who we heard from just a moment ago. We're grateful to Barbie and to Linda and to Lester and Maria and Haley uh, for helping us kind of consider uh, perspectives that are not often given central uh, status. And, uh, uh, but they need to be. And this is what we've been talking about, how uh, if we're going to talk about Jesus, we have to talk about marginalized perspectives on God and not powerful perspectives on God, privileged perspectives on God, things that have lots of backing and status behind them, because Jesus himself was a marginalized person. I think about Jesus saying uh, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle uh, than for a rich or privileged person to enter the kingdom of God. Like I, I think that that's like that's a that's a pretty stirring uh, phrase uh, from from uh, Jesus, and it makes me think like power and money and status and all of the things that privilege afford us. They just cloud our ability to find like the most important things in life to to enter the kingdom of God, as the 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 language in the Gospels is. Uh, this is the spiritual case for why it's so important to examine our privilege, but that takes work. That takes intentionality. It, it, it takes endurance uh, for someone like me who is a white person who's never had to be challenged because I enjoy so much privilege in my life. So if you're somebody for whom this has taken endurance, we, well done staying with it. We think that this is, there is a spiritual case for this and a, and a case for this that will be, you'll be so glad to have, uh, to have powered through because it will affect your life and it will change you and you will be allowed to enter the kingdom of God. The best things in life are available to us when we examine our privilege. So for the last discussion in our series, we're doing part two of decentralizing the God of the powerful. If we're going to make space for new voices to be in the center, we have to take away what's taken up too much space in the center. Kyle did part one of this as I interviewed him uh, a month or so ago about examining his privilege and how that relates to his faith. And today he's going to interview me about examining my privilege and how that relates to my faith. So I will, I will cede to Kyle and he will take over the reins. Yeah. Well, I think that what's important leading into this conversation of why Vince and I uh, need to take a moment and reflect on the, the ways that we have tried to decentralize the powerful perspectives in our own lives um, is because it's a lot of it what's at heart of, of this church. The, the truth is the last few months has put a urgency in the kind of larger conversation around making sure that we are not just centralizing the voices of power. But the truth is the experience of faith that Vince and I have had that had even in the beginning led us to start this church in a lot of ways was shaped by us learning from non-powerful voices. And for us, I think the whole heart behind why this church came to be is that we recognize the ways that we had been changed and shaped as we were decentralizing, just listening to the powerful, and then felt like we wanted to create a community that was leaning into that. And so this has felt very natural for, for us, not easy, 
not finished, uh, but it feels very much at our heart. And so uh, I'd love to pose to Vince here and just to share a little bit about what your own journey has been of not being silent. You're a pastor, you, you're certainly not silent, um, but continuing the effort of decentralizing, listening to and paying attention to just powerful perspectives. Um, and so if you wanna pull up the first point here, uh, Vince's first point of how this is uh, played out for him has been, it is the sufferer, it is from the sufferer outsider aspects of our identity that we most find God. All right, Vince, tell me what you mean by this. Yeah, so um, I'll, I will go theological a little bit for a second, and it touches on a lot of the things that um, even I think our first conversation with Rebecca in this series brought up, which is how we have to kind of like peel apart the layers of our identities. And so every one of us, I think, if, to be human is to have some aspect of your identity that is sufferer or outsider. Um, and I think those are the aspects of our identity that we most find God. Uh, but that slice of our identity, like for each of us, like if, if each of us have an identity pie, like a pie graph, the slice of our identity that is sufferer outsider is different for everybody. And so therefore like that, that, that fertile ground for connecting with God, for meeting God, for feeling, uh, you know, the presence of God is a different slice for all of us. Uh, people who experience uh, like uh, oppression in our society that slice is much larger. Uh, but because I'm human, you know, I, I don't personally experience oppression in society. So that slice is not, is not uh, particularly large for that reason, but I am human. So I do, I do have experience of being hurt. I do have experience of being betrayed. I do have experiences of being an outsider and, you know, wanting to find belonging and not being able to find it. If I want to meet Jesus, I've got to start there. And so uh, I, I, that basically is the, is the first, I, kind of, I think, lesson in my life is I actually had that experience. Uh, so this was when I, I first learned uh, about a, a concept understanding faith that we bring up a lot in this church. It's the difference between a centered approach to faith and a bounded set approach to faith. Uh, one, the bounded set approach is what I, I think most of us hear about, but has never actually helped me, is that faith is like a circle. You're either inside of the circle or you're outside of the circle. And because I did not grow up in a highly religious environment, I have just inevitably been always outside of the circle of highly religious environments. Um, and, uh, but the, the other way to think about faith, and this is when I learned this, that you, you could imagine faith in a different way. It didn't have to be inside or outside of something. Uh, faith is more like a magnet. So there's like a, a central magnet. That's why it's called a centered set. And every person in the world is just trying to get, like get into the magnetic pole of that magnet. You're never you're crossing a threshold where now you're like part of the in crowd. Congratulations, you made it. It's always just about trying to get in the magnetic pole, no matter where you are. And uh, no matter like where you are, you can actually get in that magnetic pole and the magnet pulls you in. It's not just you doing work to try to stay inside a circle. There's a back and forth there. So when I learned about this, uh, as again, as somebody who's never really fit in the circles, uh, this really like, it threw open the doors for like spiritual connection for me. So I'd become a person of faith because I had lost my mom to cancer and the people who collected me and helped me to kind of like find that I could put my life back together and move forward, even though I was 15 years old and I lost my mom to cancer. The, the people who collected me were church people. And I just kind of like, all right, well, yeah, I, I'm, I'm experiencing God who cares about me. That's wonderful. I've had these powerful spiritual experiences. I want more of that. But as I got a little bit older, I realized like 
I was, I was basically in the community that I had found myself in, I was living vicariously through all of these uh, friends who had grown up together, having the same shared experiences, the same like stories of like when they were kids in this church together or something like that. And my story was never really like brought into play. It was not actually never invited, you know, that, and I think like the implicit message that I picked up is like, my story really began when I became a person of faith, when I became somebody who was going to church. But that story prior to that, that was like, you know, that's, that's like just the, the, the prelude, it didn't really matter. And, uh, and so my, all of those things that shaped who I was and kind of the, the you know, I'd, I'd been shaped quite a bit at this point. I'm like 18 years old. Like that, there, a lot of me is already hardwired. And the idea that like none of that was brought into like who, you know, what do you have to bring to our community? What do you have to bring to discussions about God? Because that was clearly a very important thing to a bunch of kids who knew each other through church that was never invited. And so I, it, it was at that point when I learned this like centered set idea of like, oh, wait, I don't have to be inside a circle. And that was when like, I, I'd had experience of God. That was why I was in this at all. But now it was like, oh my gosh, like everything that was my story previous to this really matters. And that was when it was like, oh man, like I, I suddenly found myself praying all the time. I suddenly found myself being able to like, feel like I could honestly report like, yeah, I, I felt like I was talking to God the other day and that was really powerful. And it was all because this the story of everything up to this point now mattered. And I saw that it mattered to God and I saw that it could matter to my faith. And even though it wasn't being invited in this group of people, I could assert myself. I could say like, no, my, my story does matter. Let me tell you why. Yeah, that's super, super awesome. I think that uh, I'm thinking about the, uh, uh, the tax collector and the Pharisee of the, the picture of the Pharisee is the one that gets all the religious kind of language and culture and insider and is kind of uh, saying to the tax collector, like, we don't really want you here, but the tax collector is kind of earnestly bringing all of himself and, and recognizing where God is needed in his life. And Jesus reports back that actually the, the tax collector is the one that is in a better position at the end of the day, rather than the Pharisee. And I think it's also kind of fascinating to, to think about about you as somebody who experiences so much social privilege uh, as a white man, a white straight man. However, when you stepped into a religious environment, it was it was this, this the sense of outsiderism of because you didn't actually get that cultural kind of waters that all of a sudden you were kind of no longer invited into that space. Um, and I, I'm, I'm just curious, in just a, a building off that a little bit, uh, I wonder for you in this process, uh, especially as someone like you and I were pretty closely together and you hear me report back some of the struggles that I experience in my faith as somebody who grew up with that cultural framework. I'm curious for you, being that outsider where it felt like this is not a place that you you experience privilege, but then having an inroad into an experience of faith through there. I'm just I wonder if there what parts of that you feel like you maybe have a, a richer or a fuller or a cleaner experience of God or your identity in God than you see in people like myself, uh, your friends that grew up kind of within the cultural context of Christianity. Yeah, uh, good question. I appreciate like being given permission to say this. I sometimes feel a little bit awkward because I don't want to like hurt people's feelings uh, who have spent a lot of time in church settings. Well, you can um, just talk and, about me if you want. We can say I'll this just, isn't okay, about just, the, I'm only this isn't the rest of the world. You, you're just judging me and you have my permission. <laughs> so you go for it. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I, I think that 
a lot of energy is spent by my friends who have grown up in church trying to find something that they used to have. And, um, and that like, like the, when you are in a position of like loss, when you are in a position of like, like I'm saying suffer outsider. Oh, I, I used to have this. I, um, this thing has changed and, and that's no longer, those people left. And now I don't know where I am. Like that's actually where God is most found is I think what I want to tell people. And like that, I've been able to find that because of part of my story. And I think that, that there's just not a whole lot of belief in that. Like there, most of what we bank our idea of being spiritually fulfilled or feeling connected with God is based on nostalgia. It's based on like thing, you know, like some experience that we had in the past that did, that somebody did explain for us as God and we want to get back there. And I just think, man, you know, like I, I've gone through a lot of like waves of having to change uh, and having my community change and having the, having even like the, the way that prayer works for me change, you know, like things just break and they no longer work anymore and I have to come up with something else. And every one of those experiences is actually an opportunity for me to find God all the more, not for me to like, I don't know, like get, you know, get, get stuck and, and decide like, Oh, there's just, there's just no way to get it. Cause I have to, like, I just think that there's a lot of confusing, uh, experiencing God with, uh, experiencing something that's comfortable. Um, and sometimes like what's, what's comfortable being thrown away is it, it's always hard. Um, but it is when we feel those, you know, like stretched to the brink that we can actually build something new, uh, that will serve us more going forward. Yeah, I think that's that's really helpful. I think to, to tell on myself, I think there's a sense of we in life kind of long to experience the approval of our family. We long to experience the approval of the world we've come from. And I think for those of us that have come from religious culture, I think that that natural human craving for like your parents to say they're proud of you uh, can sometimes absolutely get in the way of actually encountering God because it becomes less about uh, an authentic interaction with God and more about fitting into some kind of a nostalgic feeling of what it was like that you were when you were aligned with your parents experience rather than walking through the steps of differentiation whereas what i see for you and almost feel jealousy sometimes is your experience of differentiation uh faith was actually like a part like that's not like you're right. having to weed through that as a part of it you get to engage faith and uh i think that that is it kind of makes that a cleaner process it's a little less murky than what i've experienced so um to pivot a little bit, this that one was a little bit more of you as a man of privilege, but all of us as humanity have parts of us that are suffer and outsider. I think it's a little bit of a shift in these next few points, uh, which is more about owning that piece of privilege of who you are and how seeing perspectives outside of that and decentralizing your own stories and narratives to listen to others has led you into a deeper experience of faith. And so let's let's bring you bring us to our second point. Uh, you say who in the Bible I see myself as matters. Tell me what you mean by that. Yeah, so uh, like you were saying, like my pie uh, is, you know, there is a sliver that is sufferer outsider. And then the rest of the pie is lots of privilege. And so if I'm going to, you know, as I move forward, there, there's a few more like kind of like memorable moments in my life. Um, all of those moments, I think is one way to describe them is me borrowing from that first sliver of my pie and trying to like teach me empathy for the rest of it. Cause like, if I want to meet God, if I want to continue to 
um, to follow the God of the oppressed, I have to, I have to go there first. It has to start in that sliver of pie and then let that teach me about the rest of my life. Um, so yeah, so this, uh, this, this, ne this next point, um, I think that the, the moment that comes to mind for me is around the time uh, of the riots in Ferguson after uh, the deaths of Michael Brown and Eric Garner. Uh, so we had, uh, I guess there's a, there's a couple of things that, that come to mind for me. So that, and this all kind of revolves around race. One is um, we had a racial identity small group uh, that was that uh, met at that time, which was really great. I learned a ton of it. I was not the leader of this group. Um, it was a, another in our in our church. And uh, we had a mixed uh, racial group, like we all kind of had different ethnic makeups and, and racial backgrounds. And uh, we were reading through some uh, resources that helped us kind of tell our own racial identity story. And then that was the goal is that each of us in the group would have like the floor for a little while to do our best to tell a racial identity story. And one memorable um, uh, session of that group was when we read about this idea of colorblindness, which I think is a little bit more well known what that means in 2020. The idea is like uh, the approach to um, to racial injustice is to say, oh, I don't see color, and that's that's how you try to try to fix things. And it's a very uh, like dissatisfying uh, approach to uh, to racial injustice um, because the, it it you know, it makes you think like, oh, you don't, you don't see color. So you don't actually see that how different the experiences are for black and brown individuals in America than white individuals in America. That doesn't solve anything. But uh, I, it, it's described so well, the Kool-Aid that I grew up drinking. Like I grew up in Evanston, Illinois, which in some ways is like the most progressive town in America. Northwestern University is there. It's this, it has this, you know, like really uh, uh, sheen uh, appearance on the outside. Um, but in a lot of ways, it has just as many skeletons as it's in its closet as every other town in America. And, uh, and, and really, this is this so well describes, I think, in high school, go, uh, growing, growing up, going to the public high school in, in Evanston. And we all kind of had this like, oh, my gosh, we're so progressive. We don't see color. Like, we're, yeah, we're inclusive. We just love everybody. And it just totally misses the idea of like, like there, there are massive inequities in resources and access and, and in the way people are treated in our country. And now I think, especially in light of the last, you know, four months in America, we're talking about this on, on a global stage more than ever before. Uh, but uh, having that experience uh, back in, I guess that was 2014 or 2015 of, of just realizing like that for the first time, it was like, oh my goodness, you know, like I am, th this is uh, the way that I bring this back to the Bible in my point here is like, when I read something happening to Jesus, where he's speaking to the poor, he's speaking to the masses versus Jesus speaking to the Pharisees, the Roman uh, guards or the people who were in power in that time, uh, the elite people in, in his society. And just realizing like, so like more often than not, I need to, if I'm going to read the Bible and get anything out of it, the appropriate parallel for me to draw is with the Pharisees. That's who I am. Or with the religious or the uh, elite people in Roman society. That's who I am. When Jesus is talking to the masses, that's actually not usually me uh, because so much of my pie is privilege and power. Uh, and so that that's like, I think that was like a real like shock to my faith of just like realizing I, I need to, I, in some ways I need to, you know, turn this backwards because it's so often you, in church settings, you'll hear a very encouraging message that is saying like, oh, you know, you're, you're, uh, you're, you're, uh, you're in trouble or something like that. And Jesus comes and this is what he said. And if we don't kind of like stop and wait, wait, but who did he say that to, you know, did he say that to the masses or did he say that to the Pharisees? 
it, it's actually, we can't just apply like anything that Jesus says to any situation. You really have to step back and say, which part of my identity is active here? And, uh, and so that was the first uh, to me really learning this. Another thing that I'll just mention, just because it was, it, it's a memory that sticks in my head. It, it's sort of about the same thing. But I remember uh, in planning a worship set around this time, like in, in kind of post uh, what was happening in, in, uh, in Ferguson and the riots there. And I remember one of, uh, one of uh, our worship leaders here at Brownline uh, challenging me a song selection because they thought it was a cultural appropriation on my part. Uh, it was like, I, I don't think that this is okay for uh, a white worship leader to lead this song. And, uh, and, and that just really stood out to me. I was, I was glad for that person kind of feeling, you know, uh, up for speaking up for themselves and saying that. And, but it's a memory that I remember, man, who I, like the, 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 the person, the, the voice I claim to speak from really matters. And that matters when we read the Bible. It matters when we, when we try to do anything in a spiritual setting. Yeah, that's great. I mean, we often say the the messages in the Bible is uh, those with power speaking humbling and those without power speaking exulting. And a lot of the systemic religious uh, challenges we have in our country is people in power reading the exulting messages to themselves, reading yes, the yes, yes, yes reading consoling messages about persecution and reading that into themselves and then reading the 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 messages of challenge uh, and then placing that upon those who are already experiencing marginalization this is how throughout history religion has so often been parties to that um and i think that it's incredibly important you know i think if i say who i saw myself as absolutely i never see myself as the pharisee i never see myself as the roman citizen i always see myself as the disciple or sometimes i see myself as jesus in the story which probably speaks uh, to some of our own, uh, our own thoughts there. Um, so to, to bring us into our next point here, uh, very much uh, attached to what we've been talking about, which is you say God is not neutral in situations of power. Tell me a little bit more about how you got there and what you mean by that. Yeah, so... Um... So I, uh, a lot of this revolves around um, something that our, our church has been, started this year talking about, which is LGBTQ inclusion in church settings. Um, so I think about how for, for decades, one of the more popular responses to um, the, uh, the religious right gaining power in America, so like the aligning of conservative politics with um, church, evangelical churches, sometimes Catholic churches in America, um, there, there, a lot of time uh, for a long time, the, the really like considered response, the response that, that many, uh, more progressive people who didn't like that happening, um, uh, the response was to be neutral, like to say like, oh, I, I think like in political situations, um, religious people should be neutral. Religious leaders should be neutral. It's, it's not, a, and, and that was a, in a lot of, that was a very satisfactory response. It's like, these things should not be intertwined. You know, it's like separation of church and state. That's really dangerous. We don't want to do that. Um, and so I'd say it was definitely a step forward um, from something that was more messy and murky and, and really like, like kind of corrupt. Um, and so, you know, we would, we would cite Bible passages like, um, I wonder if you've heard the, the uh, this one before, if you're listening, the in the book of Joshua, there is a great battle and an angel of the Lord comes and they ask the angel of the Lord, uh, whose side are you on? And the angel of the Lord says, neither. Um, and that's like kind of this stirring, like, oh, wow, yeah, like God, God is on neither side. And so that really kind of like, 
I think is is again like late. I I, I started drinking as as I became somebody who uh, was interested in being a part of church leadership, and I had my hand in volunteering and leading small groups and being a part of the spiritual direction of other people. As I went to pastoral studies school and started to become a church leader, and then when we started this church, neutral. Yeah, that was what I was supposed to be. That's what I thought. The problem is, I think. I learned that when that wisdom is to apply is applied to every situation without considering power, and I think this is the big lesson I learned around uh, this 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 massive discussion that's going on a lot of in popular culture around uh, our, our gay and lesbian friends, our trans friends, our bi friends, our queer friends being welcomed into spiritual spaces. Uh, when when there are two sides who are on equal footing, and there's like prejudice being thrown back and forth, that's when it's wise to be neutral. That's what I learned. But when we have two sides that are not on equal footing, one has all the power and one is just like, has, has, has very little power or is oppressed, neutrality doesn't work. <laughs> it doesn't work at all. And, uh, and like, that's actually where Jesus is activated. Jesus is on the side of the, uh, the one who is on the underbelly of society. And I think that for a long time, I didn't realize that. I, I, I perpetrated that idea of like, oh no, we're just supposed to be neutral in every situation. It, I, I never saw the power dynamics behind that. And I remember that uh, there, was, there was a moment where uh, a, a, another church leader that, uh, that Kyle and I had relationship with previously felt that the way that we responded, uh, th this person uh, is, is, is uh, queer, and the way that we had responded felt uh, to what was going on in culture? Were we welcoming people in our church? They felt that we took a neutral approach and therefore we were, you know, that we were, we were betraying this wisdom. We did not see the power dynamics. And, uh, and that was really hard. This was somebody who we previously were in relationship with. That relationship was broken as a result of this. And I got to say that I look back and they were right. Like I, we did not see the power dynamics. And I see that today that I would have handled that situation differently. And I would have, I would have reacted in a different way than I do today because I, I, I see more and I know more now. And uh, I, I, I think that this is one of those really humbling experiences where I recognize like when we talk about neutrality, that works sometimes, that is wise in some situations, but it's not always wise. It's not wise when we have power imbalances. The neutrality when there's power imbalance is just the status quo. You do not change the status quo when there is neutrality as a response to it. Um, I think that that's, it's an incredibly important piece for us that when you have a lot of what having privilege means is that you can be neutral because the stakes of it uh, don't impact you directly. Um, and I think uh, often in the conversation when it comes to faith, whenever there's a question of maybe did we get it wrong i think traditionally a lot of churches say well if we if we've got if we're not totally certain you know i heard this a lot about the lgbtq conversation if we're not certain we need to uh defer to tradition we need to defer to what has already like in order to overturn what is true it needs to be just overwhelmingly and so if i have any doubt i will go neutral and not push for change and i think this is that key piece is when there is power in there, that is, that's not an option. When, when there is any question, what we need to do at that place is not punt to the status quo. At that point, what we need to do is punt towards 
uh, challenging oppression and marginalization if there is power at play. And I think that that's a, it's a, a process that I think is incredibly important that we're not missing. So I really appreciate you bringing that up. Um, bringing us to your last point, as we have just a little time left here, you said oppressed people intuitively see more about God and life. I'm interested. You've got me intrigued. Tell me more what you mean by this and how you got there. Yeah. So a big, just to talk about me again, like, uh, like what this is, this was a big turning point in my personal life. Um, a big piece of my identity is like that. I, I, I know what's, I know what's going on. I see, I can understand, you know, I'm in the know. I, uh, that book that you just brought up. Yep. I've read that one before. And you know, that, that, that kind of thing. I, I've, I'm familiar with that concept that you just referred to. Um, and I, I, th I think about how much that piece of my like self-identity, the kind of story I tell about myself and, and want to show to the world was challenged when uh, after the 2016 election, when Trump won. And uh, because I was one of those uh white middle-class people telling my, uh, uh, my friends uh, who were people of color not to worry, that there's no way that this guy could win. And I, I did that. I, I was the person who was saying that. I was the person who was saying that to, uh, I most regret having said that to, uh, to my friends who were oppressed populations that, uh, that really had a lot of fear. And I was the person who was kind of like saying, don't worry about it, don't worry about it, don't worry about it. I, I feel so much regret about that. I, I realized so much that I was speaking from a place of privilege there. I was speaking from a place of power and I assumed that my voice was right. <laughs> I assumed, you know, like I, I'm a pastor. I was a pastor at that time. And so we're talking about the spiritual stakes of this. And I just assumed that my read of like what was going on in the world and, you know, and, 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 and the way that, that, that God could respond to that, I assumed it was right. But what that taught me was that, Oppressed people intuitively know more about God and life than I do. Like the, the so many of my friends who uh, who have like an element, a, a larger part of that pie where they are marginalized, they are an outsider or a sufferer. They felt a lot of fear. They felt a lot like I just like I think that this could happen. I really like I'm I'm afraid, and I didn't listen to that. And this taught me like I need to make more time. I need to talk less. Uh, there, like, I need to not presume that my read of what's going to happen when I like, you know, I'm trying to read the tea leaves of, of life is right. I, I may not be right. And, and I found that that like, it affects, I mean, it, it affects obviously my relationships. Cause I think I need to listen more to, uh, to people who, who know oppression and know suffering more than I do, but it's also affected like my prayer life. Like, I think, I think I talk less in my prayer life since the 2016 election. And, and I, a lot of that is I, I have learned that I, I am that God that I, that I'm trying to follow. That God is a God of the oppressed, not a God of the powerful. And, uh, and, and what's really important for me is to make space for that God to speak to me and not just presume that I know already what that God is going to say and fill every, fill all of my prayer with words. Uh, and so the, I, it's, it's changed my relationships, but it's also changed my prayer life. Yeah, I mean, that's fascinating that it even like has trickled into that space. I mean, I, I, I can still remember after the election that the, uh, the people that I was with the day after Trump won, um, there was there's a very different response from the friends I had of color that I saw that day, which was a, was a little bit more like, I'm, I'm, I'm 
I'm shocked at how surprised you are that this happened. Yeah. Uh, like I, the world I live in, you know, racist misogynists win out all the time. I'm not sure why you're so shocked that this happened here. Um, and so uh, I think that this is, you know, big pictures, you think about the world, but I think for you even uh, kind of breaking down the ways that privilege can blind us uh, to seeing kind of the full depth of life. Um, and I think that that's incredibly interesting to me that that played out even in your prayer life. Uh, I'm, I'm curious as we kind of wrap up here, is there any kind of final thoughts that you have uh, kind of directly about uh, what is it like for you right now when you are trying to engage with faith and trying to engage with the world and as, as a white man, how, how you have found this balance of decentralizing a God of the powerful, listening to and centralizing all of these experiences you've talked about, and then trying to, to live out this moment of time in terms of engaging with the world around you. Um, I think, I think it's all worth it. Like, um, for someone like me, again, you, every, any, every one of us listening right now, our pie is going to be different. And for me, the pie is mostly privilege. And every amount of work that I do to try to borrow empathy from that little slice of my pie that is that knows being a sufferer and knows being an outsider, every, every bit of work that I've done to do that is worth it. And I mean, like we are, we are talking about like, knocking down your ego. And we're talking about, uh, again, like I, I'm, I'm the kid who grew up in progressive town who claimed to be beyond ethnocentrism or racism or, you know, misogyny. Like, oh, I'm, I'm so, you know, like, oh, those are those other people that live elsewhere in the world. I, every bit of this has, has, has told me, yeah, actually that stuff's in you. <laughs> and you're, you're not free from that. You're not beyond that at all. And so that, that is totally an ego hit. That is totally like, there, there's a degree of that will always come with discomfort, you know? So I'm not, I'm not pitching when I say that this is worth it, that you will like every ounce of it will be like, oh, it's just so great. I'm so glad I'm doing it. This will take work, I think is, is my, my pitch too. But it's just, it's just so much better. The God of the oppressed is so much better to serve than the God of the powerful. Like, uh, I go back to like our functional reason for this series. You know, we've, we've talked about how important this is because like we, if we're talking about following Jesus, like we're just, we're talking about a different God if we're talking about power. But the functional reason for this, when, when I am in trouble, when I am suffering, and I am feeling like an outsider in those times that I get to experience that, but any time that I'm just in the shit of life, a God of power Actually, like, I know that I know that we've all been taught, like, well, you pray to that God of power because they'll work miracles on behalf. But honestly, like, I, I have yet to meet the person whose faith, like, when I ask them, like, why are you still a person of faith at 70 years old? And it's been so good to you all of your life. I have yet to meet the person who says to me, it's like, well, it's because I've seen so many miracles. I've not ever, I've never met that person. The, what people say to me when they have a lifelong faith that has served them for so long and it's in thick and thin, it's been incredible. And they're just, they're, they're so mature. And they're like the kind of person I look up to. What they say is because in my worst times, I found God in the hardest experiences of my life. God met me. That is where I met Jesus. And like, that's because that's literally the Jesus that is painted for us in the gospels. Like God does not live up on a high mountain, like the picture that Haley showed us last week, you know, flinging lightning bolts. 
God is with the oppressed. God is with the sufferer. And whenever we're going to have an experience like that, that is where we find God. And yeah, I just like, so to me, that's the, that's the reason I say this is worth it. Like, it's like, I don't, I don't actually think it's worth following a God of power because I don't think that will serve you very long. And I think that the moment that you face something that is too hard, the moment that you, that you face betrayal from a friend or a miscarriage or losing a job or a divorce or whatever it is, like it's gonna, you're going to, your faith is going to crumble. But if you know a God who, who lives in suffering, that that's when, that's when you can be sustained through the hardest things that we experience. So I don't know, there's my parting words, I guess. Thank you so much, but thanks for your vulnerability and your willingness to kind of share your story with us. As, as I think the, the piece that feels really impactful is when we, you're talking about decentralizing the powerful stories like your own, that it is actually not loss for you. It, in the end, it is actually gain. Um, and so I, I deeply appreciate that. Uh, as we bring this time in the series to an end, um, for just moving to a moment here of prayer, uh, am I, if, are you up to pray for us here, Vince, or do we have somebody totally. else that's praying for us? All right, Vince, would you just close totally. us in this conversation and this series uh, with a little bit of prayer? Cool. All right. Well, God, thank you for this whole summer. And uh, for any of us who are listening now, who have tuned in uh, via podcast or YouTube and are, are listening to this prayer right now, even if it's like six years from today, um, we pray, God, that you'd be present to us, to each of us in this moment. Uh, the God of the oppressed would be present to us. And for those of us who have lots of work to, to see you as the God of the oppressed because of how much of our pie is privileged, we just ask that you'd like show us how wonderful it is to make those jumps, to, to challenge our ego in whatever way that might happen because you are a God that's worth following, that is actually faithful and is actually all of those things that songs we sing claim you are. And I pray for those of us who, who know you as the God of the oppressed because that's been their experience most of their life or that's been the majority of their pie for a long time. Or at least it's, it's a hefty portion of their pie, even if it's not the majority, but just as we, as we try to pull apart those layers of our identity, Oh, for those of us in this community, elevate these voices. Make more space for these stories and experiences in our own church, but in the world at large. That this is, this is not just a church conversation. I, I think God is the greatest ally we could possibly want in this, but this is a, the, the reason this is important is because this is an entire world conversation. Make more space for the oppressed voices. They know more about God and life than we do intuitively than I do. I'll own that statement. Oppressed voices know more about God and life than a privileged person like me. Make more space. Give more favor in workplaces, in church settings, in neighborhoods, in government, make more space and guide us as a church as we try to be a part of that. In Jesus' name, amen.